Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So, this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. The following podcast contains references to sexual violence, which may be disturbing to some listeners. It's the 24th of June 1954 and Leonard Lawson grips the railing of the dock inside Sydney's Central Criminal Court as he prepares to hear his fate. The 26-year-old is darkly handsome, well-dressed in a suit and strikes an intellectual air with his moustache and horn-rimmed glasses. If you didn't know better, you'd think he was a lawyer or perhaps even a police prosecutor. But Leonard Lawson is accused of crimes that have outraged Sydney. And for the past month, he's been tried in a courtroom whose public galleries have been packed. Among those present to hear the verdict today are Lawson's five young female victims. The jury foreman stands. Lawson, he says, has been found guilty on two charges of rape and a third charge of assault with intent to commit rape. In the rear of the courtroom, one of Lawson's victims bursts into tears. Eyes on the floor, face impassive, the guilty man now hears the judge, Mr Justice Clancy, sentence him to death. This is the first time in more than half a century that the death penalty has been handed down in New South Wales for the crime of rape. Even so, there's every chance Lawson won't be executed. At this time in New South Wales, the abolition of capital punishment is a big issue. The death sentence is almost always commuted by the state government following a recommendation of clemency from the presiding justice. But this time, it's different. As Lawson is being led away to the cells, the judge makes an unprecedented statement. Lawson, before you leave, he calls. The prisoner is stopped and brought back to face the judge. 
It is not my practice where a sentence is fixed by Parliament to make any observations, Justice Clancy says. In your case, I propose to depart from that practice. I should not want you to leave this court in the belief that you can receive any clemency or recommendation by me to the Executive Council. I accept the law as it is and I think it is a proper and just law. In your case, I think there is no reason why the law should not be carried into execution. The judge has just said he won't recommend the death sentence be commuted. He wants Leonard Lawson to swing. But he won't. And because of that, three more people will die and the lives of dozens more will be affected over the five decades that follow. I'm Michael Adams and this is Forgotten Australia. Today, comic books rule the entertainment industry thanks to blockbuster film franchises based on favourites such as The Avengers, Spider-Man, Wonder Woman, Batman and Superman. Since 1938, when Superman debuted, comic book creators have become increasingly celebrated, with figures such as Jerry Siegel, Joe Shuster, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby venerated for their contribution to pop culture. Most pen and ink superheroes were created by Americans. Even The Phantom and his creator, Lee Falk, are actually from the United States, despite their popularity leading many to think they're Australian. But from 1946, we did have our own comic book crusader, the Lone Avenger. What was really remarkable was that this character was created by a talented teenager named Leonard Lawson. Like many superheroes, the Lone Avenger wore a mask. Even back then, so did Leonard Lawson. Leonard Lawson was born in 1927 in Wagga Wagga. His parents, Keith and Eileen, were both just 18 when they married and had him. Keith Lawson was a local celebrity. Though his day job was as one of the town's butchers, he was a talented boxer known as the Wagga Wallopper. In the late 1920s, he beat all comers and claimed the title of Riverina welterweight champion. Keith had hopes of making it in the Sydney boxing scene, but when he tried in 1931, he just couldn't cut it and was knocked out in the sixth round. But Keith boxed around the River Arena through the rest of the decade before retiring and taking up refereeing local contests. His son Leonard, known to all as Len, made Keith proud. Len was a gifted student, topping his classes. He was a Cub Scout and a champion billy cart racer. Taught by his father, he was also a good little boxer. But Len's real talent was art. That boy could draw like nobody's business. Keith was protective of his son. In 1941, when Len was 14, he and a mate had their billy carts confiscated by a cranky old man from the town. Keith confronted this bloke, a fight ensued, and the old fellow wound up in hospital with some pretty serious injuries. In the court case that followed, Keith was found to have acted in self-defence. But that verdict came about because Len's testimony backed up his dad's version of events. For young Len, it was an early lesson in how the law worked. Soon after the court case, the Lawson family moved to the Sydney seaside suburb of Manly. There, at age 15, Len scored his first commercial success as a comic book artist when he won a national competition run by artist and publisher Sid Miller. Sid Miller was a big deal. He was a former ad man for the J. Walter Thompson Agency 
and famous for co-creating the iconic Chesty Bond character in 1938. So getting the nod from Sid was some serious validation of Len's skill. Len's three-page, 33-panel comic told a war story set in the Pacific, and it was included in a comic book anthology published by Sid Miller. On the back of that success, Len got a job with publisher Frank Johnson and started studying art in Sydney. By February 1945, Len had published a full-length adventure comic called Peter Jury, which was included in Sid Miller's monster comic publication, whose subtitle was Four Australian Boys. Len is only 17 years of age and has promise of becoming one of Australia's leading comic artists, reported Wagga Wagga's Daily Advertiser. His work has won considerable attention, and it is pretty generally conceded that for so young an artist, it is outstanding in merit. Len was precocious personally as well as professionally. Just like his own parents, Len was 18 when he married Betty Jameson, also 18, in September 1946. Betty was studying dressmaking and had lived with her family in the Manly area, where her father had been a police constable for many years. In October 1946, Len got his biggest career break when he wrote and illustrated all the stories in the very first issue of Action Comics, published by H.J. Edwards. Readers thrilled to the science fiction tale of Spencer Steele, who was exploring the universe in the far-off future time of 1956. Then there was the thrilling life of speed racer Johnny Starr and the adventures of detective Michael Justice. The second issue of Action Comics saw the debut of the character who would become Len's most famous, the Lone Avenger. The Lone Avenger was a white hat wearing cowboy named Paul Nichols who fought baddies and saved ladies while keeping his identity secret behind a black and red mask. Sure, it was derivative of the Lone Ranger, but it hit a chord with Australian boys, not least because they knew this was a homegrown hero whose adventures they were following every issue. What also set Len's work for Action Comics apart from the competition was that his splash page, that is, the first page of the story, was also the cover. Pick up a copy, and you're immediately drawn into the story. Action Comics had been an anthology, but the Lone Avenger soon took over the entire book and would continue his crime-fighting run for another 13 years. Kids all over Australia and New Zealand and Fiji joined the fan club and bought Lone Avenger toys and outfits. Australian author Robert Drew, then 10 years old, was one such fan, jealous beyond belief when one of his friends won a Lone Avenger gun belt through the comic's Find the Bullet competition. The prize came with a letter from the Lone Avenger himself that expressed all the character stood for. This was strict and all-encompassing, Robert Drew wrote in The Age in 2009. He insisted we should worship God, venerate the Queen, honour our parents, be polite to adults, respect people of all creeds, be kind to animals, do three good deeds a day, study hard, play healthy outdoor sports and obey the law. The Lone Avenger wanted us to make something of ourselves. Len produced other popular characters for action comics, including another cowboy dude, this one called the Hooded Rider, and a wild jungle babe in Diana, Queen of the Apes. It was actually a good time to be a talented comic book artist in Australia, 
Since the start of the war, American imports had been banned because publishers were dumping stock and flooding the market. Back then, kids thrilled to the adventures of several locally created superheroes. There was Captain Atom, the Crimson Comet, and heroic aviator Tim Valor. But the Lone Avenger had the biggest following, selling 70,000 copies per issue. By the early 1950s, Len was doing brilliantly. He had a successful career, a happy marriage, and three young children. Len was earning £70 a week, which is the equivalent of $2,400 a week today. While that's a lot of money now, back then it bought even more. For example, Len could have purchased a beautiful brick home in Manly for £4,500, what he earned in about 15 months. He seemed to have everything a man could want. Except something dark and twisted lurked inside Leonard Lawson. He would later say he'd had a terrible sex urge since he was 14. Lawson also later claimed that during the period of his first success with the Lone Avenger, he had consulted a psychiatrist because he was prone to suicidal thoughts and fits of uncontrollable laughter and sobbing. It's hard to know if these stories were true or simply excuses he conjured later, but something was very wrong with Leonard Lawson. Around February 1954, he hired several models from a leading Sydney agency. He took them to Terry Hills and they walked into bushland so he could photograph them. Three months later, on the 7th of May 1954, Leonard hired five models. Two were aged 15, with the other three in their late teens and early 20s. One of the models had been on the previous job with Lawson. That had gone off fine and there was nothing to fear. Lawson wanted them, he said, for a calendar he proposed to publish. He picked the girls up from the studio at 9.30am and they stopped in St Leonard's to buy some sandwiches, for the day was supposed to have a picnic feeling. Lawson drove them to the Terry Hills location and they walked from the car through thick bush. Of all the beautiful places in Sydney, I don't know why you had to pick this place to take photographs, one girl said. I am paying for this day's work, Lawson responded, and you will do what you are told. This sunny day soon took a very dark turn. When this calendar comes out, I won't be here, Lawson told his young friends gravely. I have cancer. The models were saddened and horrified, but they were even more distressed by what Lawson said next. He told them he was planning to commit suicide rather than endure an agonising death. I'm thinking about putting a bullet in my brain, he said. In a flash, Lawson took a sawn-off rifle from his backpack, loaded it, and declared he was going to kill himself there and then. Scared and crying, the girls pleaded with him not to. Lawson abruptly turned the rifle on them, telling them to all lay on their stomachs. He was going to tie them up, he said, so they couldn't stop him from shooting himself. Producing prepared lengths of looped rope, Lawson tied the girls' hands and wrists and used sticking plaster to cover their mouths. His true purpose became clear. Lawson began removing or cutting off their clothes. The girls pleaded and prayed for their lives. Telling them they'd each get a bullet through the head if they resisted, Lawson raped two girls, tried to rape a third, and indecently assaulted or intimidated the other two. I don't know why I picked on you decent girls instead of street women, he said remorsefully when he was done. Lawson untied his victims, paid them each their £6 modelling fee, 
and drove them to Gordon because one girl wanted to go to a chemist. It was as if he thought what had happened was no big deal. Once inside the pharmacy, the girl called her parents and the police, who descended and arrested Lawson while he was still sitting in the car outside. In the days to come, Lawson, who was denied bail, gave seven separate confessions. But when the case against him was heard from the 24th of May, he pleaded not guilty. The girls testified against him in chilling detail, telling the court how he'd manipulated them before unleashing his full savagery. Even today, these reports make for horrifying reading. All the girls were crying, testified one victim. Some were quite hysterical. We were all positive he was going to shoot us and then shoot himself. Not true, Lawson's lawyer said. He claimed that the girls had all been willing participants in a burlesque on the theme of rape. Testifying, Lawson admitted that he had had sex with some of his accusers, but said it was all consensual. He did feel guilty, but only because he'd betrayed his wedding vows. Being a married man, I felt pretty ashamed of myself and told the girls so, he said to the court. They assured me there was nothing to worry about. The jury needed only two hours to deliberate. The Sun's front page headline simply screamed, Guilty! Now all that remained was to see if, as the judge hoped, this sadistic pervert would hang for his crimes. Before that was decided, one of Lawson's victims was further traumatised by a letter writer who sent her newspaper photos of her annotated with scrawled notes. One read, This body cost a man his life. Is there no shame? I've had nightmares since it happened, this girl told the son of life after Leonard Lawson. I wake up at night and can see his eyes staring at me. I can't even bear to sit in a room on my own with a boy now. I make my mother or brother sit with me when anyone calls. The other victim in this, of course, was Lawson's wife, Betty, now left not just with the shame of what her husband had done, but also without the financial means to support herself and her three young children. I'm only 26 and I've got to face the rest of my life alone, she said. You read about these things happening to someone else and you never think they could happen to you. Betty would divorce Len before moving to Queensland for a fresh start. The Lone Avenger, meanwhile, was so lucrative that the comic continued on, with an artist named Len Such taking over for a few years. But Leonard Lawson's infamy contributed greatly to the unease about comic books and their effects on young minds. Queensland was most strident, banning the Lone Avenger shortly after Lawson's conviction. To avert further backlash, comic book publishers self-censored, their stories losing some of what had made them appealing. In an article on the excellent website of the Comic Book Legal Defence Fund, comic book historian Joe Sergi explained what happened next. The comic backlash was so bad that it would take 30 years for Australia to develop another local comic book industry, he wrote. It didn't help that the embargo against the importing of American comics was lifted and the local comic creators again faced competition from America. Leonard Lawson had damaged the lives of five young women and their families. He had ruined his own life, his reputation, career, family, and severely damaged the industry he'd helped to establish. Lawson cut a quiet and lonely figure at Long Bay Jail as he awaited Cabinet's decision on whether to commute his death sentence. One question had to be answered first. 
Was Leonard Lawson sane? A government-appointed psychiatrist found that he was, and Lawson's death sentence was commuted to 14 years' imprisonment. With good behaviour, he might be released after 10 and a half years. That meant the earliest that Leonard Lawson could re-enter Australian society was around the start of 1965. Leonard Lawson was a model prisoner at Goulburn Jail. He found religion, painted religious images, taught a young prisoner to read, write and to draw. His exemplary conduct led to him being released on parole three years earlier than anticipated. On the 24th of May 1961, Leonard Lawson was again a free man. He rented an apartment in Collaroy on the northern beaches and bought a car with money his mother gave him. Lawson had numerous sexual liaisons with women he met casually and prostitutes he picked up on the street. But they couldn't satisfy his dark appetites, with the violent fantasies that had secretly sustained him in prison now increasingly occupying his mind. Lawson roamed south to Mossvale, where on the 20th of June, he went to the Church of England Girls Grammar School and introduced himself to the headmistress, Miss Jean Turnbull. He was, he told her, an author writing a Centrinian-style novel and would love the opportunity to observe the girls. Miss Turnbull invited him to lunch in the dining room and gave him a tour of the school. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Lawson visited the school again once or twice, attending chapel and again lunching with the students. As a thank you, he gave Miss Turnbull a painting of Jesus Christ. Back in Manly in late September 1961, Lawson met and befriended a 16-year-old girl named Jane Bauer. He charmed the teenager and her family, telling them he wanted to paint Jane's portrait and maybe even enter it into the Archibald Prize. Jane posed for him several times. At 5pm on Monday the 6th of November 1961, Leonard Lawson picked her up at the city art shop where she worked. They then collected her mother and Lawson drove them all back across the Sydney Harbour Bridge to the Bower House in Manly where they shared an early dinner. Trusted by the family, Lawson was allowed to take Jane to his apartment so he could again sketch her. There, he made advances on her, but she rebuffed him. What she didn't know was that Lawson was obsessed with her and had already decided he would have her, even if it meant forcing himself on her. Before bringing her back to his apartment, Lawson had filled a sock with sand and readied pre-cut lengths of rope. With Jane sitting on the lounge, her back to him, Lawson went to the bedroom, got the sock and swung it hard into her head. Jane was knocked out. Lawson tied her wrists took off her clothes and raped her. Seeing Jane was coming around and realising he was going to jail for what he'd done, Lawson started to strangle her. When she struggled, he grabbed a hunting knife and plunged it into her chest. Using an eyebrow pencil, he wrote on her torso, God forgive me, Len. 
Jane's parents were anxious when she didn't return home. They enlisted Jane's 22-year-old cousin to help in the search and they visited Lawson's flat, but no one answered. After a night of searching, they came back to the flat the following morning. There, Jane's cousin broke in and found her body. When police arrived around 9 o'clock, they discovered a sketch Lawson had done of Jane and torn up pornographic drawings in his garbage bin. At Sydney Police Headquarters, plans were drawn up for a statewide search. But it wouldn't be necessary. Within minutes, the fugitives' whereabouts were known. Lawson had driven south to Mossvale, arriving around 2.30am and parked on the side of the road. He wrote a letter to his parents. Dear Mum and Dad, it read, I've done a shocking and dreadful thing. Whatever this monster that moves into my body is, it did it with a vengeance this time. It was something entirely beyond my control. It's so fantastic, it must be hard to understand. And whatever it is it needs, sends sanity out of the window. And then just as quickly after it is over, I come back to hard logical sanity, which is a dreadful experience. I can't express the horror I feel at what I've done. Jane was one of the finest, sweetest and most virtuous girls I have known. As I am completely sane and rational now, I know I have to kill myself for as long as I live, I will only bring misery and unhappiness to all associated with me. He signed this self-pitying ramble with your broken-hearted son, Len. But Leonard Lawson didn't intend to kill himself. At 8.30am, he drove to the Church of England Girls Grammar School that he'd scoped out months earlier. He had with him a 22 Remington rifle, 167 rounds of ammunition, the knife he'd used to kill Jane, and pre-cut lengths of rope. Just after 9am, 150 students, including many leaving certificate students who had an exam later that day, were in the school chapel under the supervision of headmistress Miss Turnbull. Through the windows, some of the girls saw a man approaching across the lawn. At first they thought he was carrying a broom and that it was odd that a cleaner should expect to do his work while chapel was in progress. Suddenly, Leonard Lawson, the author they'd met months earlier, was in the doorway of the chapel brandishing a gun. Was this some kind of literary technique to help him write his book? That's what a few girls wondered. Lawson told everyone to be quiet and to not move. If anyone tries anything silly, one of the girls will be shot, he said. What do you want? asked the headmistress, Miss Turnbull. I'm going to hold the girls as hostages here until 12 o'clock, he said. I have killed someone already and I want to speak to three people. Lawson allowed Miss Turnbull to return to the front of the chapel and to continue the morning service. To distract themselves from their terror, the girls sang hymns as loudly as they could. Meanwhile, Lawson gave a piece of paper to another staff member, Miss Brooks, who left the chapel with this message. To whom it may concern, this prepared note read. Read this carefully before any attempt is made to contact the police. Lives depend on it. By now the police will be hunting me for murder, so I am going to hold the girls as hostages for a few hours. No harm will come to them if you obey my instructions to the letter. I am heavily armed, my most effective weapon being a high-powered rifle which holds 15 shots in the magazine and which I can fire almost as fast as a machine gun. If any attempt is made to contact the police before 12 o'clock noon, two girls will be immediately shot dead. Lawson also said if anyone came within 100 feet of the chapel, he'd shoot a girl. I am not bluffing. I have killed once, so now I have everything to gain and nothing to lose by killing more. It's the same penalty I must face. The police will be handed a note instructing them to bring three people here so I can talk to them. 
Bizarrely, the three people Lawson wanted to speak to were a nun who had befriended him in prison, reigning Miss Australia Tanya Verstack, and Olympic athlete Marlene Matthews. I am not a killer in nature or desire, but if forced to do so by anybody foolish enough, then I won't hesitate, he had written. If I see hide or hair of the police before 12 o'clock, then I'll make sure you regret you ignored my instructions. I'm sure you don't want any girl to die because of your stupidity. Meanwhile, Miss Turnbull surreptitiously wrote her own note and threw it out the window. It was much more to the point. A man is holding us up in here with a shotgun, she wrote. Get lots of police. He is threatening to shoot the girls. Lawson was increasingly nervous. With the teachers and girls sure he was about to start shooting. If you are going to shoot, why not shoot me or one of the staff, Miss Turnbull asked. She was backed up by the old French teacher, Madame Sherman. We have lived most of our lives, she said. They have most of their lives still to live. Outside, a police detective and a constable arrived and approached the chapel. Lawson saw them through the window. Here come the police, he said, near the door. Now I'm going to shoot. Miss Turnbull jumped into action, grabbing the gun, trying to keep it aimed away from the students, some of who also rushed Lawson. Lawson started firing. Five shots rang out. Miss Turnbull and Lawson fought for control of the rifle while students grabbed at him. Seeing this through the chapel door's glass panel, the police tried to get inside, but Lawson had secured the door with a cord. The police constable smashed the glass panel and Miss Turnbull managed to thrust the rifle barrel through the frame. The constable grabbed it and pulled the gun free. Now he and the detective burst in and subdued the still struggling Lawson. Miss Turnbull had painful powder burns on both hands and a hole in her dress where a bullet had passed through the fabric. 15-year-old Wendy Luscombe lay on the floor, hit in the chest by a bullet. Just seconds earlier, Wendy had pushed one of her friends out of the firing line and also tried to help Miss Turnbull get the gun from Lawson. When shot, Wendy fell to the floor beside her friend Joe Taplin. Joe, don't, she said. Then she died in her friend's arms, the bullet having passed through her heart. Joe Taplin began to scream. The constable arresting Lawson asked, What is the matter with you? I have already killed once. I have nothing to lose, Lawson replied. Ten minutes ago, I was insane. Now I am sane. It is hard to imagine that this is happening. Lawson was taken to the Mossvale police station. During interrogation, he said he'd never meant to harm anyone, despite the overwhelming evidence to the contrary, and again claimed to have been overtaken by temporary insanity. Incredibly, the school tried to return to normal immediately, and leaving certificate students left the crime scene to go sit their examination. In years to come, the school would do its best to forget the incident, as would parents of the girls who'd seen one of their friends die on the chapel floor. Talking to a feature writer for The Age in the year 2000, many of these women, then in their 50s, spoke of decades of anxiety, trauma and guilt. When Leonard Lawson went to court in December 1961, charged with the murder of Jane Bower, he pleaded not guilty. Should the case against him fail, he'd then be tried for the death of Wendy Luscombe. But proceedings were delayed while he was psychiatrically assessed. When the case resumed at Sydney's Central Criminal Court in late February 1962, the only defence witness was a psychiatrist, 
and he testified that Lawson was sane when he killed Jane Bauer. Lawson spoke to the court. I can't explain what made me do this terrible thing because I don't know. It was just something beyond my control. No matter what the official verdict of this court is, for the rest of my life, my greatest punishment will come from my own conscience. I realise, gentlemen, that remorse alone cannot make amends and that no human agency can forgive me for what I have done. I can do nothing but throw myself on the mercy of the court. He sounded sane, civilised and sorry. But Mr Justice McClemens wasn't buying it. He told the jury that while Lawson was legally sane, it should be clear you are dealing with a madman. On the 4th of April 1962, it took the jury just 17 minutes to find Leonard Lawson guilty of Jane Bower's murder. With a life sentence a certainty, Leonard Lawson wasn't tried for the death of Wendy Luscombe. Her father, Ronald, present at the trial, was furious. At one point, he'd hit Lawson, and once the verdict was handed down, he lashed out at the politicians who'd let his daughter's killer back into society. Headmistress Jean Turnbull in mid-1962 was awarded an MBE for her bravery. The police who'd caught Lawson also received commendations. Behind bars in Parramatta Jail, Leonard Lawson again became a model prisoner. He went back to painting, receiving commissions from the public, who didn't seem perturbed by the fact that the artist had so much blood on his hands. But even behind bars, Leonard Lawson had one more outrage to perpetrate, one more life to destroy. On the 18th of June 1972, a concert was held in the chapel at Parramatta Jail to entertain the prisoners. Afterwards, the entertainers, including three dancers, were invited to have some light refreshments put on by the prison's Arts and Crafts Committee, of which Lawson was secretary. Prisoners and performers mingled in a rec room under the gaze of Lawson's undeniably accomplished portrait paintings. Sharon Hamilton, a 23-year-old dancer, was admiring Lawson's portrait of President John F. Kennedy when he tapped her on the shoulder and asked her to sign the visitor's book. She did so and also complimented him on his art, saying the paintings were beautiful. Later, Sharon was standing with other performers discussing that there had been a problem with inmate behaviour at another jail's concert. Someone in the group reassured them there'd be no such situation here. Standing nearby, Leonard Lawson was heard to say, You never know. You never do know. Soon after, it was announced that the visit was over. Standing beside Sharon Hamilton, Lawson was called on to give a speech of thanks. In an instant, he grabbed her and put a knife to her throat and another knife to her back. Everybody leave the room but her, he said. But Lawson wasn't dealing with young models he'd lured into the bush or frightened schoolgirls he was holding at gunpoint. He was in a room with criminals, none of whom wanted to see a young woman hurt. Two prisoners lunged at Lawson. One punched him in the face. He staggered back. Prison guards stepped in to grapple with him while another prisoner pulled Sharon Hamilton free. Lawson dropped one knife and another was ripped from him by a second guard, who then subdued Lawson. Sharon Hamilton was bleeding. She had a small cut on her neck, another on her hand and three on her back. But Sharon's main wounds would be emotional and psychological. Leonard Lawson faced court in August 1972. 
What he said sounded very familiar. He hadn't intended to hurt Sharon, that he'd been depressed in the weeks leading up to the incident, and he'd actually hoped his action would result in him being shot by the riot squad. Lawson was sentenced to another five years. But after Leonard Lawson's attack, Sharon Hamilton was sentenced to her own psychological prison. She found it hard to work, to go out, to socialise. Everywhere she looked, she saw Lawson. She attempted suicide on several occasions. What she appeared to be suffering from was post-traumatic stress disorder, which was still a few years from being defined and recognised. From 1974 to 1976, Sharon lived in a private hospital where her psychological problems were treated. Unfortunately, that hospital was Chelmsford, where destructive deep sleep and electroshock therapy was practised, leading to the deaths of 43 patients and an eventual royal commission. In 1976, Sharon won a payout from the state government of nearly $100,000, admitting their negligence had led to Lawson's attack on her. But life didn't get any easier for Sharon. She had a tumultuous relationship with the doctor and suffered depression. In February 1978, Sharon took a fatal overdose of barbiturates. While foul play was initially suspected, an inquest ruled she had committed suicide. Behind bars, Leonard Lawson continued to paint, donating his artworks to charities and raising tens of thousands of dollars. In 1994, the possibility of parole was raised for Leonard Lawson. But Wendy Luscombe's brother, along with several of the women who'd survived the school siege, protested loudly. The government listened, sanity prevailed, and Lawson remained in Grafton Jail. In 1999, Lawson, now Australia's longest-serving prisoner, was interviewed for the television program 60 Minutes. He presented as a kindly old codger who just wanted the chance to feel the grass under his feet one more time before he died. As the saying goes, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. No one was prepared to be fooled by Leonard Lawson a third time. To paraphrase one of the arresting police in 1961, what was wrong with Leonard Lawson? Available evidence suggests the psychiatrists who examined him were correct in saying he was sane. In the 1954 and 1961 cases, Lawson followed the same modus operandi. He reconnoitred the scenes, got to know the victims, fantasised about them, planned his crime meticulously and brought the necessary weapons and restraints. Lawson's contention that he was suddenly taken over by a monster belies all of this ritualistic organisation. Even the 1972 attack on Sharon, though more a crime of opportunity, followed the same rough game plan. Make nice with her, retrieve a prepared weapon, inflict damage, and then claim he hadn't really meant any harm. Leonard Lawson was never paroled. He died on the 29th of November, 2003, at the age of 76, and was missed by no one. I'm Michael Adams, and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. If you liked what you heard, I'd love it if you could leave a review and or a rating at iTunes. 
There are plenty more stories at ForgottenAustralia.com and links to the Facebook page and to my forthcoming book, Australia's Sweetheart, which is about our forgotten Hollywood star, Mary Maguire. Forgotten Australia was written and recorded by me in Gatoomba, New South Wales, Australia, on land traditionally owned by the Gundungurra people. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.